the United Kingdom intends to go it alone on aviation regulation and certification, what that means for business aircraft operators around the globe. From the National Business Aviation Association, this is Flight Plan. I'm Rob Finfrock with your trusted source for business aviation news. After years of often contentious debate, the United Kingdom formally severed ties to the European Union on January 31, 2020. At that time, some expected that even under Brexit, the UK would remain what's termed an associated country in the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, with EASA continuing to oversee aircraft certification and aviation safety regulation in the UK as it has since 2003. However, an announcement two months later from UK State Secretary for Transportation Grant Shapps made it clear the country will go it alone on aviation matters as well, with the UK Civil Aviation Authority, CAA, assuming oversight of those duties effective January 1, 2021. So what does that mean for business aviation, not only in the UK but around the globe? Joining us to help answer that question is Dave Edwards, CEO of the Air Charter Association based in the UK, and NBAA's Vice President of Regulatory and International Affairs, Doug Carr. Doug, please tell us a bit about the relationship between EASA and the CAA prior to Brexit, and how does it appear that will now change? So we've had a pretty long engagement with EASA over the years in helping them to develop some of their initial operating rules back in 2005, 2006. And it was clear that experts from the United Kingdom who were participating in EASA's process really played a significant role in helping the agency to develop the standards that are in place today. Uh, the EASA framework provided a, a common platform for all states to have an input in, in what the standards are, which are then overseen and implemented by each member state within uh, the EU and within the EASA uh, over, overseen uh, states. Um, the UK has, has always been a leader in many of these discussions, and their, their expertise has always been, been very valuable. So with this development, should operators over on this side of the pond expect to see any significant changes? For U.S. operators, I think this is going to be a, a rather insignificant change in terms of what may be needed to conduct operations into the United Kingdom. Much like we have had a single source of, uh, of approvals for non-commercial and commercial operations into Europe through EASA, uh, and the member states. This will be just another process for a U.S. operator to go through in terms of coordination with the U.K. authorities for operations into the U.K. In my view, this isn't going to be a significant change in how uh, U.S. operators conduct their operations into Europe. Dave, thanks again for joining us from the U.K. Is this what the business aviation community in your country expected to see with the Brexit announcement? Brexit is obviously something that's uh, you know, keeping everyone very focused here um, and has done really for the last three years. Um, I think most of us are relatively surprised that there's a decision to move away from EASA as a, a kind of oversight framework, but it's perhaps not to be, um, it's not too unexpected given um, how the, uh, the, the government have, have approached Brexit more recently. So, Whilst most uh, associations like ourselves, but also most uh, operators have been saying it would be great if we could continue being part of EASA, um, it's certainly going to be uh, a challenge, I think, to, to get um, 
the UK CAA back into a complete oversight role um, across everything that that was devolved across to EASA is obviously going to be a challenge in a very short space of time. Um, so it's such a significant change for the country. Uh, whichever side of the fence you're on, that we're we're all sitting back um, to some extent, just waiting to hear what the um, the ideas are. Certainly, the the information we've had from the CAA in terms of their Brexit preparations over the, the past few years seems to have been very good. I don't think um, uh, of, of all the government agencies, they were very far behind um, everyone else. And so that was that's a positive thing. And now it's really up to a, uh, you know, a discussion between um, EASA and the UK CAA on, on the way forward. What concerns are you hearing from charter operators in the UK about this situation? And what changes may be in store for your members? The important thing for us and for aviation worldwide really is the level playing field concept. It's, uh, you know, when we get down to the freedoms of the air, um, it would be nice if we could have that um, that ability to fly wherever we like, whenever we like. What's happened so far is that UKCAA have said that um, all European operators can continue to fly domestic flights within the UK. So point to point flights on charter. Um, at the moment, um, after the, the end of Brexit, we currently, uh, as UK operators, wouldn't have the ability to go and fly into European flights, which obviously uh, doesn't quite go in line with that um, that concept of the, the level playing field that most operators um, would, would hope to see. It's great for our European members in that they're really not going to see much change to, to how they operate and where they can operate. Um, from our UK operator members, it's a, at the moment, it's a little bit unfair because they're not going to be able to compete on the same terms as the European operators and have that that same access to the market so that's quite a challenge um, and it'll be interesting to see uh, certainly the lobbying that um, we're doing the local associations in the uk like the bbga and and um, also the ebaa at the european level we're all doing is to just make sure that um, the government does understand that uh, you know the industry is in desperate need of support it needs that level playing field across all of um, europe I think um, all we're looking for really is that that common sense approach really from from governments and from the regulators during the negotiations to ensure that uh, wherever you're based in, in Europe and if you're flying into Europe as well, uh, you just have that, that kind of common sense approach so that access to all the markets is as unrestricted as it has been um, when the UK was part of the EU. Doug, a recent NBAA article about this situation mentioned the possibility of a bilateral aviation safety agreement between the UK and EASA. Can you tell us a bit about what that would entail? Bilateral agreements are a common tool between regulators that help to really eliminate or minimize the amount of duplicative work that each takes on. There's currently a a BASA, as it's known, between the U.S. and EASA. It covers a whole host of, of oversight functions, including oversight of aircraft certification, oversight of commercial operations, and so on. I, I would expect that a similar BASA will be developed for, for the UK as they take on this, this role of overseeing their own aviation safety. It is an important tool, and as was discussed uh, earlier, there, there's, there's an important level playing field consideration so that uh, not only uh, do U.S. operators have certain, uh, certain uh privileges or considerations for their operations into the UK, those same kinds of considerations would be applied to UK operators coming to the US. 
it, it really provides an opportunity for recognition of competency between, between regulators and gives some uh, confidence to the operating community of what to expect from, from the other country. Just to reiterate, an example of this would be the reciprocal acceptance of aircraft certifications between the FAA and EASA, right? That kind of mutual recognition really is the basis of a bilateral aviation safety agreement. It, it, it takes advantage of expertise in each, in each regulatory region and for, from the operator's perspective, really attempts to minimize the times that they're having to either certify a product and go through all the demonstrations or, uh, or for an operator to demonstrate that they are safe, that they are certificated, that they are conducting operations in accordance with their own regulatory scheme. It is, it is a workload reducing tool, but also one that brings a whole lot of transparency, we believe, to the kind of work that each regulator should perform. Just coming back quickly to, to what Doug's just said, I think all we want is that we don't want to see backward steps taking place. You know, we've we've negotiated um, as as EASA and as the member countries, we've negotiated a very good playing field for what for aviation in terms of regulation, in terms of airworthiness. Um, as we said, the, the agreements with uh, the FAA on airworthiness and things like that. We don't want that to change. So as long as we don't move backwards, I think we'll all be relatively happy. As you just alluded to, Dave, we're speaking today at the very beginning of this process, so we're not completely certain yet of how things may play out before the end of the year. Do you anticipate possible changes to this plan, and is it possible the UK could shift its position before then? It would probably be, I would uh, say, the easiest um, decision to make, because if we can um, go back into a full membership of ER, so that would be great. The challenge, obviously, there is that the UK won't be a member of the EU. And that's just one of the requirements of membership in EASA. Although four countries, Iceland, Liechtenstein, Norway, and Switzerland, that aren't in the EU are still associate members in EASA. Is that an option for the UK? That is a potential um, opportunity, but of course it does take away some of the control. And that um, is really what the the argument, uh, I think, that the the government made at the end on the Brexit situation uh, was, you know, bringing back control over everything that um, the UK has uh, from an EU perspective. So I guess it would be difficult to really uh, for the UK to then suddenly turn around and say, actually, we'll stay as an associate member of EASA. Uh, without quite the same voting rights and quite the same sway at the very top. So I, I'd be very surprised if that happened in the same way as I'd be very surprised if, if Brexit now doesn't get delivered as well. So what guidance are you giving to ACA members about this situation, Dave? At the moment, we're just making them aware of everything that, that comes out of EASA and comes out of um, UK government. I would honestly love to say that there were... Uh, reams and reams of advice coming out of everybody about what's next but I think it's you know it, it's the same in the pharmaceutical industry and and others you know we're not seeing much out of either party at the moment the the first announcement that the UK uh, would not be a part of EASA uh, was when the transport secretary made his, his statement uh, over in America that was to be frank, news to most associations, I think. Um, it wasn't certainly what we'd all envisaged and hoped. Um, and all we're looking for now, in the same way as I think uh, the entire country uh, here in the UK was looking for, was just clarity, just some sight of what we're supposed to be working towards. Because for UK operators, um, 
for EU operators, just going to, to our EU members, it's at the moment, it's okay for them. Nothing's really going to change for them. It appears they'll have the same access rights, as I've said, into the UK. For UK operators, it is going to be a big change. It's going to be a change to the regulatory system. It's going to be a change to traffic rights into um, the, the EU states, the EU member states. Um, and look at COVID-19 at the moment. We don't know what to do next because, as an industry because we just don't know what to plan for. Um, whereas with Brexit um, and from an EASA perspective, if we could get some visibility in the early stages of, of this process, I think it would help all of the operators just make plans um, for the future because we don't have very long to go now. So it would be quite nice if we could just get that clarity um, so that we're able to go to the members and keep them briefed. But at the moment, as an association, we're just keeping them up to date with the latest information that comes out of, of both sides of the negotiating table um, as they come out. But um, it's been fairly spare so far, unfortunately. And Doug, what advice do you have for NBAA members watching the situation and how it may affect their operations to the UK and throughout Europe over the next year? For the remainder of 2020, I, I don't predict a lot of changes manifesting themselves in changes that operators will need to pay attention to. However, as we as we get past 2020, it'll be important that operators remain up to date with any changes that the UK CAA implements, any changes to procedures or standards. It'll be important to understand if any differences are are going to be imposed that uh, that creates something alternative to standards EASA may have already established. I see those being potential uh, impacts that operators will need to be aware of so that they can ensure that they are compliant when they fly into the UK with, with the UK CAA now providing that oversight. And we'll, we'll make sure that as those changes come to light that we're, we're sharing that information with members. The UK Civil Aviation Authority has established a microsite on the web with the latest information about the CAA's transition away from EASA. You may find that at info.caa.co.uk forward slash Brexit. Additional information may also be found under the International Operations section of the NBAA website. And that's the latest from the National Business Aviation Association. Remember, you can subscribe to all Flight Plan episodes at Apple Podcasts in the App Store, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, or download them from nbaa.org. I'm Rob Finfrock, and thanks for listening to Flight Plan.